Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the inaugural Community Forum 2018 organized by IPS. Um, it's inaugural, but if it goes badly, uh, it might be the first and the last. So it depends on whether you like what we're doing here. Um, but I'm hopeful, judging from the turnout, um, 200 over people signed up. We're not sure how many people will come, um, many different organizations. And also quite interesting, uh, the intention was to get under the radar groups to come. And I've looked at the list, and we have interesting people here, people I've never heard about. Um, Plastic Light Singapore, for example. We have Project We Forgot. Uh, it's a group to support caregivers of people with dementia. We have various faith-based uh, groups. And before I go further, I'll introduce myself. I'm Justin Lee. I'm a research fellow at the Institute of Policy Studies. I'm your organizer, host, MC, presenter, moderator, doing the opening and closing. And the reason why we're doing this is because uh, IPS is interested in um, the ABCs, right? So we reduce our kind of functions and strategic thrust into acronyms that people can understand. So we do analysis, policy analysis. We build bridges with government, community, the private sector, and then we communicate research. So I'll start with a bit about the context and purpose of uh, why we're doing this. We have issues, right? Singapore has social issues. We have um, inequality. We have an aging population, etc. And perhaps it took us a long time, but we're starting to appreciate that some of these social issues are structural issues. They're not personal, individual troubles. And so structural problems deserve structural solutions. And a community-wide, a government likes to do, you know, whole-of-government approach. We also need some kind of community-wide approach towards thinking about this. At the same time, we've also kind of bemoaned the loss of some kind of kampong spirit and gotong royong. So, you know, commentators have said since we moved away from our kampongs into our vertical flats, we've not become nice neighbors to one another. We don't interact as much. Is that a bad thing? Um, I'm not sure because I'm kind of ambivalent about this so far because we have become affluent. We have become self-sufficient somewhat. State provision has met many of our needs. So we don't kind of need to help each other as much. But it's an open question. I'm, I'm not sure. What should the state provide? What are the needs? What should the state provide? What should individual families be responsible for? And what can the larger community do? And so these are some of the kind of guiding questions to, uh, that we, we can have. So the context is we'll kind of start with a kind of taking stock of what is the state of mutual help, community mobilization, or collective action in Singapore. Uh, the government has created a space for community, but is there a strong sense of communal identity and solidarity? Um, to me, it seems like we have a lot of hardware, but do we have the software? To what extent do people show up for facilities, food, or freebies? Or to what extent do they show up because they have shared interests and values? I'm sure most of you are not here for the food or the nice aircon or because you'd like to hang out in this space. There's a reason why you're here. So that's one of the questions, right? Um, if you believe in something and doing it together, you will show up even if the premises are crappy. Um, and in the voluntary sector, a lot of the VWOs, they, because of uh, funding, a lot of money comes from government or funders. So there's a tendency to also cultivate vertical relationships with your funders, and less so horizontal relationships with one another. Sometimes there are turf issues, sometimes you feel they're competitors for the same funds. And so that's kind of like the context and we want to discuss, you know, uh, how do we think about this? Well, does it matter? 
And also at the same time, um, there's, there are a lot of diverse community assets with untapped potential and we, we hardly know anything about them. They don't know anything about one another, much less will interact or collaborate with one another. So many under the radar groups lack actual formal associations, large ones have, right? But small ones like community artists, youth workers, practice researchers, uh, they, lack, they lack an umbrella organization. Uh, we don't even have an umbrella civil society body or a non-profit association that covers everybody. Um, the ones that do uh, operate in their own circuits. For example, NCSS has VWOs in their membership. RACE has social enterprises. The Global Compact uh, uh, focuses on uh, CSRs. And sometimes they call these apex bodies, which like, you know, is like a pyramid, right? The apex, you are the uh, first amongst peers. And even that is a question and issue. Are these membership organizations or are these first amongst peers? Um, and third of all, um, we, we do want to showcase the potential of technology. It has reduced the cost of association and serious complex work can be done without formal organizations. And so we'll showcase some open collaboration platforms today. Um, now, so that's the context and therefore the purpose. So first of all, we want to understand how to work with communities properly, what values matter. It's kind of like a different kind of work. Um, maybe um, we're more familiar with VWOs that are service providers. You know, you get funding and you offer a service and the standard narrative there is, okay, be good at getting funding, demonstrate impact, innovate, and then replicate, standardize your services, scale up, right? And then you're successful. But that's a kind of administrative logic or a market logic put together, right? Um, what is uh, the third sector's logic? What is a different logic to doing things, right? Um, are there sometimes in the community, small is beautiful. Not everything needs to be scaled up. Um, and what are the values of the third sector? Um, are we diminishing or under, undermining certain important values when administrative logic and market logic are overpowering? Uh, do we care about civic values such as volunteerism, cooperation, mutual help, collective action, reciprocity, which all operates according to social capital, not financial capital, trust and relationships? Um, so that's why we've invited um, Gerard E to come here uh, from Beyond Social Services um, to kind of share with us his experience, his wealth of experience doing this with us. Um, secondly, we, we do want to highlight the work of relatively unknown under the radar groups doing good work. They've mobilized themselves and um, so we have Jing Zhou from the Cassia Resettlement team. He'll tell you about how he's managed to do this um, together with different community partners to you know, relocate uh, people who moved from Dakota to Cassia. And we do also want to build bridges across the larger community sector or civil society. We have a community dialogue at the end of today where you will be able to offer something you or your group or your organization is interested to do and request for what you want to seek from them, right? How you want to collaborate or partner. Um, so let's do this exercise. How many of you have heard of VWOs? A lot. How many have heard of social enterprises? How many of you have heard of CSRs? Have. Okay, harder ones. How many of you have heard of community artists? Have. Okay, quite good. Service learning officers or community engagement officers of the schools or the universities? 
How many of you know what practice researchers are? Ah, see, I see one or two practice researchers. Do you know what is social agriculture? Even I don't really know what that is. How many of you know what a cooperative is? Because you know NTUC, right? But how many of you know what a worker cooperative is? <laughs> Have you heard of mutual benefit organizations? Right, not bad. Okay, how many of you have heard of the Serious Games Association? See, there will always be some group out there doing quite interesting things that we know less about. So we have the usual suspects everybody knows. We also want to bring some under-the-radar groups together um, and showcase opportunities for collaboration and call to action. In a sense, um, certain technologies have enabled um, us to have meaningful participation, not just bring people together. It's not just social media, it's bringing people together, have meaningful conversations. And we have Dr. Wong Xiaoqing today who will um, later share on the role of civic technology. She studied this in Hong Kong and Taiwan. Uh, we'll also showcase our very own homegrown um, initiative called the Social Collab. And later on um, in the afternoon, we'll have two volunteer-driven uh, platforms, surf.sg and Buntu. And uh, these are volunteer platforms driven and designed by volunteers themselves. So that's kind of interesting to see how that goes. So I guess I'll kind of um, talk about a the theme now. I guess uh, it sounds right. This is kind of a tribute to uh, Clay Shirky, who's a te um, technology academic journalist. And he wrote this book in 2008 called Here Comes Everybody. Um, so the theme is a tribute to his book, and he he studied um, the role of Wikipedia, Flickr, and, quite, and how it's changed the ways um, people come together. So it says here, the power of organizing without organizations, and so that's kind of what uh, this is about. You we've typically organized using formal bureaucracies and organizations, but there's also a lot of ground up initiatives that can happen especially with tech-based platforms, but you don't need tech-based platforms to do ground-up initiatives. Um, and kind of added something to it. And besides just that, you know, all can contribute. So here comes everybody. And I assure you, every single one of you can contribute. You have contributed, but if you're looking for opportunities to contribute more, collaborate with others, um, there's an opportunity here. And I guess I would like to conclude by kind of raising the question, You've all gone out and done your own thing and did wonderful jobs so far. What is it like when we really unleash the real power of the community, when groups come together, deliberate on issues that affect them and take collective action? Are we afraid of this? Do we see the community as problems to be managed? Or are we hopeful? Do we see the community and diverse groups as assets that can be part of the solution? Um, thus far, I mean, the Singaporean narrative, we focused on economic development, we focused on building financial capital. Perhaps it is time to focus on building social capital. And it's a different ball game. And so we want to hear from the veterans of community development who have done this work for some time to kind of give us some insights and wisdom on how this is done. It's a different logic, a different set of values and guiding principles. But I would just end with this um, kind of hopeful statement. I feel that a voluntary sector that can draw out diverse groups and untapped community resources will be stronger and more responsive to our growing social needs. 
Such ground-up efforts will also contribute to the building of community solidarity and maybe a culture of self-help or mutual help in Singapore. Now, before I introduce our keynote, um, we have a bell system. Every speaker gets 15 minutes, so you will hear two bells, which suge suggests that we should wrap up. And, no, one bell to suggest that we should wrap up and two bells to say that our time is done. So don't be uh, alarmed by the bells. Okay, now I'll introduce uh, Gerard. Um, if you look, I think you all have, um, uh, you can read what Beyond Social Services is, and Gerard describes himself as, um, so Beyond Social Services works in rental housing neighborhoods the, to become villagers that raise their children well. And I would point out that he's kind of like the village elder or wise sage of that community. Um, but you can read about his bio on your own time. This is the kind of person Gerard is. Gerard is the kind of person that says, when I invited him to this forum, you know, is this the kind of conference where everybody comes and listens to a few experts? And I say, unfortunately, most of the time it's going to be like that. But we hope to have a, a dialogue as far as possible. But that's the sensibility Gerard brings, right? It's, there's a way of doing things we are comfortable with, but there's a different way and possibly a better way. Um, and, and I think um, I've learned a lot from my interactions with Gerard. Um, and the whole point of the session, I feel, well, think tanks like IPS like to talk shop. And I've talked to parents support groups that say, you know, we don't just want to come and talk shop. We want to do something. And perhaps that's something that we can also try to do together. Perhaps we can be a people-powered think tank. IPS can try that for size and see what happens. And no one, no one better to learn this than the godfather of community development in Singapore, who stuck to his guns, did it, still doing it, not for fame, glory, status, wealth, or prestige, but he has a ton of street cred. And we should bring him from the village and the streets to the podium once in a while because we need to learn from him and he has wisdom to share. So please uh, put your hands together for Gerard E. Hi, everyone. Good morning. Uh, and thank you, Justin, for the very kind words. Uh, Sometimes I can't believe Jasmine, uh, Justin because he puts on the program uh, to come dress casually and, and if that's an idea of casual, I don't know what I look like now. <laughs> uh, anyway, anyway, um, I thought I'll set the context. I, I've been doing this work for a long time. I work in low-income neighborhoods and the type of community that I speak about, uh, communities within public rental housing, and uh, in Singapore, there are 276 blocks. I am in contact, or my organization is in contact with other people with about 60 blocks. All right, so that is the context and the type of community I'm talking about. Um, so, okay, look at this uh, picture. Um, you look at four women laughing, having a good time, and you would think that they've known each other forever and they're good friends. Well, they are good friends, but um, about a year and a half ago, they were neighbors, but they were also strangers. They did not know each other about a year and a half ago. What a colleague actually did was to, um, was to listen and talk to all of them and realize that they actually had a shared concern that their kids were not doing well in school and needed some support in school. So what we did was uh, we brought down volunteers. I think it was from a junior college and they came in the evening and they, they did tuition 
in that neighborhood. That is Jalan Bukemira, by the way. And uh, when volunteers came, there was no space to do tuition and all. And those women, they were quite ingenious. They, they actually said, okay, uh, the hawker center works in the morning, in the afternoon is cleared. We come a little earlier, we clear the place a little bit, and the kids can have tuition at the hawker center in the evening when no one was occupying it. And that's what they did. And uh, it went on for a while, and it wasn't quite satisfying because there were more and more kids coming and a little noisy, a little distracting. And uh, so they asked themselves, what more could they do? And um, so what they did was, and um, tried to advocate for themselves, um, they took pictures of the kids having tuition at the Hawker Centre, and they forwarded those pictures to the MP. And when the MP saw that, the MP, of course, opened the RC Centre for them and said, look, you guys, please use the RC Centre. Now, those women gathered together because uh, they had driven by a purpose to care for their kids. But uh, that gave them a purpose. It made them strong. But what I want to talk about today is not how people gather for a purpose. It's how people, when they gather for a purpose, how community actually is formed. And it's this experience I want to share about, like what is a strong community? I've actually used them as an example uh, because to sort of capture their life experience to show you what happens when people actually come together for a purpose, and that is community. So, all right. Um, we all know it's a way of belonging. That's how we would describe it. And uh, when we say it's a way of belonging, it's not just a sense of belonging. It's something that belongs to me. And that's why we call it a place that we call our own. Right? It's quite commonsensical. And, but when we come together in this place, it's not just a physical place. It's a place of uh, this purpose, like how I've described earlier. It's also a place of interest. So if people like dogs and they come together and have a dog club, that's fine. People like to do coding, they come together and they do something, that's also fine, that's my interest. So what defines community then is that when you come together, you feel connected and you feel happy, you feel contented. And when you come together, you can give and you can receive support. So I don't come to buy something, I come to give and I come to receive as a result. And it's always a possibility, and I use the word always, I stress, it's always a possibility because as long as we own the questions and we are clear, why do we come together? What is it that we want to create together? What's the difference? The difference could just be having a dog club, or the difference could be having tuition for my kids. But what is the difference that we want to create when we come together? And... Uh, this is a difference that we can't do alone, we can only do together. So, if one of them actually took tuition from one of our volunteers and uh, just cared for his or her own child, and we took the photo of one child in a hawker centre and went to the MP, the MP probably said, will say something like, hey, that's Mandaki, that's Cinder, that's CDAC, you should go for one of those tuition programmes. Right, they'll probably say, go, go. But when they show one whole group of people at Hawker Centre and say, hey, look, these are your constituents, a whole group of us here who can't, uh, don't have a decent place for tuition, it's different. And we say, of course, use the RC Centre. Right? So that is the difference. When people come together, um, 
there is a difference. I think when we talk about community as opposed to, to a consumer society, for instance, if I want something, I buy something. But in a community, if I want something, how do I create it with the people around me? So there are actually three properties of a community. One is gifts as opposed to needs. A lot of us work in VWOs. We have to do a needs assessment. With a needs assessment comes funding and comes services. This is very different. In a community, the raw material are not needs. They are gifts. Because with gifts, we can do something together, right? People are strong. The next thing is associations. Association is a process where these gifts can actually be, um, be given. These gifts can actually be manifested. You know? If I, I come together in association, there's a purpose for me to come together to use these gifts. And the last property is about uh, hospitality. When I'm more hospitable, I welcome more people. Actually, every time I welcome more people, I welcome new ideas, and that is the welcoming of gifts. So my gifts grow right, when I'm hospitable. So I just elaborate a little bit. So it's three women, associational life, they came together, they wanted to get together to provide tuition for the kids. And they also welcome other gifts, so now they even have a fitness program in the neighborhood because the, there's a fitness instructor who comes every week, does a program, and they're very happy, they welcome them. So as they welcome all this, uh, there's a purpose and there's a gift, they are able to to create a better life for the kids in their neighborhood. But what actually has happened, the community that happens because they come together. One of these women actually is divorced with two kids, and uh, for a long time she didn't, uh, she didn't have a home, and uh, it was quite, quite bad. But another lady in this photo actually uh, got together with her husband, and they, they opened up their one-room flat, they changed the base into double-decker base, and they put everybody in a one-room flat. And the husband did, uh, well, something that is not so legal, but I don't think there's anything wrong with it, anything criminal with it. He actually said, wow, now so many people in the home are very hot. Huh? It was already hot. So I don't know where he got some money, and he actually put air condition in their home. Uh, next time you walk to a rental block and you see an air conditioner, don't assume that people are actually wasting money. Okay, actually they're caring for each other. So I don't know how he fixed an air conditioner in the home. And he put uh, two families, this uh, divorcee with two kids and his own family together. And he changed the base. And it's basically a solution that I don't think any service provider down here can provide. Then another one of these ladies, uh, five kids, husband lost a job, very difficult position. Um, so other people in the neighborhood actually brought her from one service center to another service center and, and just to get all the services. But still, what is the problem, right? The problem is still money not enough. How much is uh, financial aid, right? So money is not enough. And what happened is uh, there was an older lady that's in the group that was, had a hawker stall. And she decided that, okay, la, maybe it's time to call it quits. Uh, give my stall to this lady with five kids. So she retired and she gave the stall to the lady with five kids. And she had the skills, it was the right circumstances. And actually today, the lady with five kids is quite stable because somebody gave her a hawker stall. Again, which service provider actually gives hawker stalls? Right? So this is the type of community that actually happens when people get together and they start 
caring for each other. They care for each other, not just within their purpose, but because they are connected to, not just for their own needs, they're connected with people around them, connected to the world, and they want to create a world that is more hospitable for all of us. So associations are the premise whereby those gifts can be actually uh, given. Hospitality is also another thing about community. We are always welcoming our people. I want to stress this because when people think of community, they think of a, a close thing. This is the ABC community, that's the yellow community, that's the blue community. Yellow and blue cannot mix, otherwise we become green. So, you know, you, you know, when people think of community like that, they think of exclusive groups. I'm not talking about exclusive groups. I think you are not community if you are not welcoming of people. Community is an ongoing endeavor to be more inclusive of people. It's to create a more hospitable world, not just for the people in that group, but for all of us. Um, so when you look at this, this is actually a session where this group, this mothers in Jalan Pukimera, they wanted to share what they, what they are doing in their neighborhood. And they invited other mothers from all different neighborhoods, and they talked. And as they talk, everyone got inspired, but what happened is um, the whole network started growing. So they have a wider community of support and other people started offering gifts. So that is one, one thing, uh, when you welcome, if you are welcoming of other people, your list of gifts actually grow, your inventory of gifts actually grow. The other thing about welcoming is, uh, those mothers were talking about um, yeah, you know, it looks like the women are doing everything down here. <laughs> can't the men do something, right? And the men, one of the men said, well, I can't do very much, but my friend can. So he brought a friend to the neighborhood. Friends started teaching sepata crawl. And now all these different neighborhoods, they are talking how to get a sepata crawl tournament going across different neighborhoods. So you've got to be welcoming of gifts, okay? And uh, another thing that we do is very welcome that tries to strengthen this property is we can we accept a lot of requests for learning journeys so all sorts of people visit our neighborhoods they can be teachers they can be business people people in csr donors whatever they come and we introduce them to our families so our families actually host them why do we do that right we do that because was that a bell no okay we do that because uh, we do that because we, we tell these people, right? I mean, these people actually, so what if we live in a one-room rental flat? We are proud of our home. Can we not be proud of our home because we live in a one-room rental flat? We can be. And when you are proud of my home, people from all over the world can come and visit me regardless. Because I have pride. I'm in a position of strength. But if I'm ashamed of my home, even if I live in a mansion, I won't allow people in. I'll say that the maids didn't clean the place. Right, so this is all uh, a shift in perspective, how we see ourselves, and this is how we encourage. So learning journeys are great, and people actually feel very proud to host, host a lot of different people from, for the learning journeys that we have. And when they come, actually we're not here to, to change anybody. Like we just say, just come, listen, and then let's go. Now this is the third property, it's about gifts. This woman is smiling so nicely, but if you ask her social worker, you can say that she has so many problems, multiple problems, you know, got special needs, kids, got this, got that. You can either look at her as a glass half empty or a glass half full. And social services don't only look at people as glass half empty. Sometimes they look at people as a bottomless spin. 
that cannot be filled. So it's very sad. Huh? If you look at them, her, she's actually a valued leader in her neighborhood. Yes, she uses some social services, but she's not, not useless. I mean, she is a leader. There is so much potential. People are not weak just because they have problems. Right? So people actually have strengths. So even if you're a druggie, right? here we criminalize all the druggies and we lock them up. What happens? They cannot contribute to society. But can you imagine if I'm a druggie, I'm on medication, but I come out, yes, I won't live forever because I'm taking drugs. I'll live shorter lives than you. But when I still have the opportunity in the community not to do harm, but to continue doing good and to continue contributing to society, something to think about, regardless of my problems, there is something I can always give. It's whether I'm given the opportunity and the space to do so. So when you look at all these gifts and strengths of people, this is what we focus on. Like I said earlier, the raw material for community is gifts. The raw material for services are needs. So you see where we are coming from? We are focusing on gifts. And uh, what do I want to say about this? Um, okay, so those gifts are not just individual gifts. In the neighborhood, when you put them collectively, the gifts actually become something very special. So all along, we have like, um, very recently, we had one mother who had postnatal depression. She was screaming, her children ran down, the aunties went up. And for the next few weeks, the aunties in the neighborhood actually looked after the family, looked after the mother, made sure that she had all the necessary food and all that kind of thing. Another time, her mother, the child went missing, sent out SMS to the neighborhood group. People went, drove around and then brought the kid back. Uh, another time, old people in the neighborhood, they don't need uh, government social workers to come. Their neighbors actually bring them to the hospital. So, you know, if I can tell you the stories, there are just so many stories. People are willing to give, and people solve their own problems. So that's how we create community. We look at people, and we say that we're interested in you. We're not so interested in a program, right? We look in their processes. We don't just organize things. We sometimes have to watch and see what is it they are really doing. And then we go there and support it. As opposed to, okay, you all come, I organize, I tell you what to do. What they have is also enough. You don't have to look and say, hey, you, I, you know what I think you need? You need leadership or you need, you need this, you need that. Actually, not true. If we look hard enough, it's already there. It's a matter of of reorganizing things a little bit so that those things, those, uh, those qualities can, can manifest. Yeah. Oh, we have a lot of talk about independence in this country, but you think about it, uh, is any one of us really so independent? Actually, a lot of us get by because we are friends. It's a narrative of independence, but we talk about independence as though all of us are superheroes. Look, even superheroes, the last two superhero movies were what? Like, everyone came together and they still lost, right? <laughs> I, oh, I, I don't know, anyway. Okay, so, uh, so the last one, right? You know, we, we're not consumers. We have to be citizens. And, uh, you know, in my organization, I say you join the organization as beyond, even if you're a member of the staff, you must first and foremost acknowledge that you're a member of a community. Eh? a community that uh, works with the community in rental housing neighborhoods. We are not working for people, we are working with people. And if you want to work at Beyond, you have to see yourself as a member of the community. That's one of the things 
that uh, we are co-creating things with the people and not doing things for the people. So this is how we do it, and uh, these are just some, some directions. Lah. And what happens when we put all those three properties together, we often see that there are a lot of kindness that emerge, generosity, cooperation, forgiveness. These are capacities that emerge within communities. Right? And I really don't know about you, but uh, these are capacities that I hope my neighborhood has. And uh, I'll be very happy if I live in such a neighborhood. So I hope you do too. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Gerard. This is why we have him, right? I mean, I listen really get goosebumps. Um, I'll just kind of um, take questions um, so we have more time with him. Instead, I have tons of questions to ask, but you know, rather have, the, have you raise questions instead. Um, if you can, can introduce yourself so that we all know who's in the room. It'd be nice for us. Sure. My name is Kim Ong. Um, I run uh, social enterprises. Social enterprises. And uh, well, um, I'm thinking of like example uh, whether like Yishun specifically, you know, like Yishun Family Service Center. Um, is it possible that like they bring mothers uh, or needy mothers together, and then so that to start this um, coming together to help each other since they're all from the same uh, uh, zone. These are, for example, from the single. Um, the one room rental flats who are needy and they are financial aid recipients. Uh, I mean, so far I, I, um, I've not seen this done, but I know like Touch Community Service, they have something like this going on. Uh, uh, so can you, uh, can you comment on, on this possibility of you know, uh, bringing uh, 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 people together? Uh, thanks. So the question is whether um, family service centers or VWOs can do some of these things, bring the community together, some of the examples you have, and how can others think about doing it in the same way? I think the very first thing we, we have to ask ourselves is, uh, what is our identity? Do we see ourselves as uh, somebody who is uh, trying to value and honor what is really in the community or do we see ourselves as experts who come here or because there's a need in the community to be filled so it's actually fundamentally we we do have to make this very distinct difference eh? that uh, we try and get people to help themselves we're not trying to come here to help people eh? Um, it's very, I mean, there are times we, we have to do something to, to start the ball rolling, but you need to be mindful and aware that uh, there is, this is it's not ideal when that time, those times happen, and that you have to try and get people to do something for themselves. How do you actually get this going? Uh, try not to provide a service. <laughs> Don't... Uh, Try to hold a space to listen to why are people gathered? Uh, what is it people want? Want to do for themselves and uh, 
perhaps uh, how can you facilitate that? Um, so the way we facilitate it sometimes is link them to resources and uh, just create a context. Uh, um, I, I'm not sure if I've answered you, but yeah. Um, uh, other questions? By the way, this uh, session and the session after lunch will be videotaped. We would like to put some of these things on uh, YouTube so that more people can get to hear about the discussions today. Um, anyone else have questions? Yes, please. Hello, uh, my name is Saza from Aware, uh, and I think I do what you do, what you talk about in rental flats. Also, I just um, finished reading Yo Yen's book. Uh, you know, this is what inequality looks like. I'm sure many of us are familiar with it as well. Um, and I guess my question really is that you know the common narrative is help the community to help themselves to empower them. But then, what about um, the structural inequalities that she's looking at, the debarment periods? Um, the ways that mothers who are single mothers, you know, they don't have flexible working arrangements, childcare don't work until midnight, so it's that kind of thing. I'm wondering uh, if you have any thoughts about this, like structural inequalities. The really depends on how you frame an issue. I think if you, you look at this room, this room is a structure. It's a structure where, where you guys sit down and I answer the questions, you ask the questions and I answer the questions. It's the way it has been organized like that. So, so when I come in, I mean, I really know my role. I'm supposed to sit here and answer the questions. Um, there is also another way of organizing today's event. And uh, when we look at uh, how society is structured, as of today, if you look at UN's book, yeah, the way Singapore society is structured, it produces that type of inequality. Um, clarity of identity also means that, is that something that myself, let's say, in my position as a director of Beyond Social Services or a community worker, can I really do something to effect that type of change at that structural level that's created by the government? My realistic answer is probably not, because unless I, I join the government. But what is it I can do to reduce inequality in my context? So when we actually do a learning journey where our families host, let's say, uh, people from a different social strata, they come to their homes. Is that also not a way of uh, leveling things up a little bit? That's also a way of creating some, in, some equality. Um, that um, somebody actually comes and learn from someone from a different social strata. Somebody from a, a different uh, background or more privileged or more advantaged background actually for the two hours start to see this mother with three children or five children or whatever as his or her teacher. So that's a, that's a different way of creating more equality in people's lives. Uh, I think as a community worker, I can't really um, change very big structures. 
but I can ensure that every day I go about my job, the little the things that I do, I can actually uh, be mindful how how we can create equality among people. So that that is what we do. <laughs> I mean, I yeah. So I mean, of course, we should have those discourse and that type of conversation at that level. But I ask myself, right? I mean, each of us actually can do a little bit to improve equality in this country. Maybe I'll add in a question of my own. What do you think of the state of community involvement in Singapore? My own sense is, okay, if let's say the phone rings, somebody's phone rings now, and they start chatting loudly in this auditorium and it annoys others, are you going to go to IPS organizers and say, you know, you should do something about this problem? <laughs> which is the instinct of most Singaporeans. Complain to the authorities, the authorities will do it. Or are you going to do it yourself? Say, you can, you know, you can do it nicely, or you can do it artfully, or you can do it badly. But the thing is, most Singaporeans are afraid of doing that. So what's your sense? Um, are, are we like fussy customers? Because the government has done a good job providing services. So we fold our arms and we say, you know, we just complain to the authorities. What's your sense of... Are we able to, are we ready and able to move there? Even I'm guilty of, uh, I, I myself am very guilty of not, not uh, taking on my, my own rights, not exercising my right as a citizen. I mean, I go to a swimming pool and, and do my laps and there are people, hunks who are better looking than me who stand at a corner and don't swim. <laughs> and, and sometimes I wonder to myself and I say, hey, can't the lifeguard ask him to get out of the way because this is a lane that you're supposed to swim continuously, but well, maybe they are hung, so they have a privilege. <laughs> but, uh, you were once a hunk. No, no, life. no. <laughs> but, uh, so I, I have to go tell them, hey, hey guys, go chat the other side, right? But you, by doing that, you have to take responsibility. So what's happening here? What's happening here is actually we are so used to consuming. We don't try to act on our own anymore. Every, if there's a problem, you just have to tell the fellow, hey, excuse me, let's don't do that or whatever. I mean, but we have to take responsibility. We have to own, own our place in the, in the auditorium or in the swimming pool for that matter, I mean. Uh, but what has happened with the very consumer mindset is that I know, I know you guys have needs. Whatever your need, I have an answer. You just have to pay me a little bit more and I'll give you that answer. And I think predominantly we have become that type of society. Like we're so used to buying things rather than trying to create some things for ourselves. And also kind of interesting, I mean, if you live in HDB flat and you know, um, your neighbors do things that annoy you, you complain town council. And the implication of that is the town council knows all the problems, all the issues, all the troublemakers, all the good ones, but you don't know one another. Yeah. Right? You don't know what's going on in your neighborhood. Yeah. And they don't have the solution, actually. Yeah, yeah they, they don't have the solution. Position to act. Um, other questions? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, you first, then you. <laughs> then you. Hi. Since it's near the mic. Uh, my name is John. I'm from MVPC. So I think it's great to really hear from a, really a practitioner on the ground. And some of these questions that I have is really about how do you implement it. I think one thing that you admire about ABCD is you mentioned the studying you know, is a bit different from the needs-based kind of thing. Um, so my question is, how do you actually manage the expectation of your 
supposed potential clients or people who works it, who actually stays in the community, people be like, hey, you should be doing this for me. You should be like, meeting my needs. But here you are saying that, no, I'm not going to do that. You know, but you go and find out yourself. I can connect you. So just curious, how does the journey being for you um, in trying to navigate the expectations? And the second question is, in your opinion, how long, how many years, or if you could give us some colors about how many years or duration it takes you three to build up a strong community as according to what you shared. Yeah, thank you. So uh, just to um, kind of clarify, the, the ABCD you mentioned is how do you do kind of assets-based community development work? Uh, in a sense, how do you kind of, kind of work with your stakeholders who may not necessarily understand this type of work? And secondly, how long have you do it? How long will it take to actually do it well? Well, first of all, everything I've said is, uh, is not from me. It's actually from ABCD, actually, everything that I've said. So I, I want to declare that I think uh, it's maybe after many years of uh, trying to understand the essence of ABCD, maybe it comes across in our own words, but we didn't invent this. This was the ABCD model. Uh, how long does it take? I think... Um, I think What type of answer you want me to give you? I mean, for ourselves, our own benchmarks, uh, if we want to get to know a neighborhood, it takes about six months of uh, going out there, knocking on every door, speaking to every resident, collating the information, making sense of the information. So for us, it takes about six months. And that is just one level. And then we, we now do something called a neighborhood health report. So we do community mapping. We, we organize volunteers to hang around neighborhoods, talk to people, try and figure out what's actually happening, come back, make sense of, of what people are saying. Um, you, you can't just move in and move out. La. If you move in, you then have to try and identify people who are going to stay, people who are going to be there, who can do the work after you have moved out. So, so I, I think it'll take forever, but it will, if you really want to do this, I think you've got to get started. And I can safely say in six months, you'll get to know a community better if you have the methods, yeah. The gentleman over there? Hi, I'm Hazim from Alato Change. Uh, my question is basically more on use and because Right now, um, there's a lot of mindset on like, how you look at problems, and you always try and find and identify needs and problems. And of course, um, in the speech you gave, you talked about looking at more of the benefits and more of the strengths of the community. And of course, this immersion takes generally a very long time. And youths nowadays, I, is you, like to, you like to explore different communities. And of course, tying down to one specific community is going to be tough for some people. So what would your advice be for those people, and especially like, the benefits of immersing in one community. So basically, um, I'm kind of explaining to Dra because, yeah. So you like to explore and try different things. How do you get them to commit to a community for a, a long time? I I would put it then when young people go out and explore, they are looking for community the peer group becomes their community. So that is how I would look at it. 
I think not every young person would go out and explore. I think they go out and explore because they they don't have a sense of community with their families or they don't belong to something they feel that uh, they are a bigger part of. So if, if young people are part of a football team, for instance, and that football team becomes their community, and that football team then has a whole different uh, practices and rituals, they got tournaments and they got everything, they got a whole different life, that is that young person's community. But if you're talking about other people, yeah, I think we got to recognize that uh, they are looking for community. And when you get them to come together, you should ask them the question, why do they come together for? What is it they want to do? Uh, create that they can't do alone, but only as a group. I think those two questions that I started off right at the beginning uh, would be important for a, a group of young people. Thank you, Jared. Um, I think we'll, we'll end the Q&A for now, but we'll still get a chance to uh, have Gerard at the end of, uh, there's a panel at the end with uh, Jing Zhou and uh, Xiao Qing. So let's give Gerard a round of applause for now. Let's save some more for later. Um, thank you, Gerard. I'll introduce our next two speakers. Um, so um, our next speaker is co-founder of the Cassia Resettlement Team. and. Um, Lim Jingzhou, he has worked with various organizations serving children, youth, and elderly across local and international communities over the years. He's the founder of a service learning programs alumni group, served as a volunteer manager in a local VWO carry center, and continues to serve as a school and youth coordinator for a Kenyan registered NGO. Um, he also uh, volunteers as a researcher with Advocates for Refugees in Singapore, works in the admin secretariat team for an endowment fund, Etc. So you would think that he's this old and distinguished veteran in the social services, but he hasn't even gone to university yet. So that's what's impressive about uh, Jing Zhou. He's done this, and can you please give him a round of applause and invite him to share with us what he's been doing? Thank you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity today to share with all of you about our team's journey and our work with the community. Um, I'm Jing Zhou, and today I represent the Kasia Resettlement Team, or CRT in short. Uh, CRT is a grown-up team that is not a registered organization, and all our members are currently volunteers from all walks of life. Uh, just a disclaimer, because Gerard was talking so much about needs um, versus looking at gifts in the community, so I briefly flipped through um, what I prepared today, and I looked, oh no, I have so many words on needs. So I ought to go back and reflect today. Uh, but really, our journey started back then when the expiry date for Dakota Crescent flats were announced in July 2014. And from then till now, there has been many conversations about the heritage and cultural value of Dakota Crescent, which was built in 1958, predating the existence of HDB. But the question is, what does this really mean for the community members, for the people of Dakota Crescent? Over the course of our work, we have learned that it is really a deep, a deep sense, a deep loss of home. For some residents, a place that has been home for more than 50 years. So along the way, a team of citizen volunteers like us came together and we sought answers to important but often unasked questions, like how are the residents experiencing the process of relocation? Does it matter if they were not homeowners, but rather rental flat residents? And I think a simple search online will yield little answers to these questions, and it's important for us to ask why. This was what a resident with, uh, shared with the team as we did some of the interviews before the residents were relocated. And this is something that we still try to do today. The Dakota Trails was one way which we shared how we have learned from the community 
And most importantly, together with members of the community, with resident, residents of Dakota Crescent co-guiding these trails together with us. The Between Two Homes project is a combination of the hard work of a team of citizen volunteers who sought to document the relocation story and the place, but most importantly, the people of Dakota Crescent. As the estate gets demolished, as interest and conversations about Dakota Crescent fades, we hope that the website, which is betweentwohomes.sg, which the team has produced, will hopefully stay to continue to tell these stories and to inspire the important conversations that we should have about home and what it means to us. The, be the beginnings of Kaiser Resettlement Team, CRT, to me was really a response to the needs on the ground that we have experienced and felt together with the residents, uh, and also because we felt that we could do something about it no matter how small our efforts were. Due to time constraints, I will not go into elaborate on the struggles and needs uh, deeply about what have happened from the relocation. But generally speaking, they range from different things like changes in environment, uh, from the geographical distance to the design of the new estate, to lack of choices from simple choices of having being able to choose to stay with their old neighbours, which they have stayed with for tens of many years, to disruptions in routines and community relationships because they were separated from people, they were separated from their routines, and to an overhaul in the social service provision due to changes in service, service providers. So the first area of our work uh, for CRT really is the direct service, the direct work working closely with the residents of Kasia who are not just relocated from Dakota Crescent but also other estates like Sims Drive. I think we used to share that we do all these things and befriending, medicine, packing, medical, escort and all, but really I came to the realization recently that it has become impossible to define the scope of services which we cover because I think when we really think about serving communities, when you really want to respond to community needs, uh, which do not always fit into neat boxes, uh, which are dynamic, which are always changing, the foundational values of CRT then becomes key. The emphasis on building strong relationships and trust with the people we serve before we think about serving them. What we need to do this is often the willingness to challenge ourselves to work together with the residents, not just working for them as a service provider would, to learn from the residents along the process and to think about how their gifts, like what Jared mentioned, can contribute to the formation of a strong community and to be also comfortable to know that we do not always have all the answers and solutions to all the problems and that is fine. Today we do all sorts of things we support residents who say that they need help to apply for the Home Access Program with IMDA. We assist residents to navigate sometimes complex and bureaucratic systems like accessing the unnominated CPF monies of their deceased partners. And later today, I will be going together with one of the seniors who is currently living alone to visit his son who is currently in prison, as they have requested. The picture on the right is a resident who lives alone with no next of kin and the team journeyed with him as he was admitted twice into the hospital and twice we worked together with him to transit back to living in community. Whether is it organising a roster of visits at the hospital, coordinating breakfast runs for him when he was discharged or managing his medications post-discharge. Our journey started from him asking to be admitted into a nursing home which was rejected because he was deemed ineligible to him being able to live fairly independently in the community today. Today he struggles with various health issues still, but he has the peace of mind and assurance knowing that there are people he can call on and rely on if something does happen 
Until then, he continues to cycle around the neighborhood freely and independently. I must emphasize that this would not have been possible without the community members working together with us to help look out for him and to care for him together with us, like buying breakfast for him because we live so far apart, but they could easily do it for him, or visiting him when we were working because he was lonely and afraid. And other examples are like how residents would help to point out different things like his memory is worsening, he has been having multiple meals because he has forgotten that he has eaten his meals. And these are the things that help us to support residents together. Along the way, I also learned the importance of having these strong relationships and trust with residents because simple words like, I don't need to go to the clinic could mean a lot more. It was only over time with the relationship built up with this resident and the trust that we have with one another that he finally shared with me about how, why he decided that he didn't want to go to the clinic. So this was when, this, this issue started when, we first, when I first met him and he complained of the pain due to a chipped tooth. And uh, when I asked if it's seen the dentist, he said, don't need to go. And when we subsequently asked what he was doing about the pain, he then shared that he has been fouling his chipped tooth with a nail clipper. But really what I've learned behind this don't need to go is all his different worries about costs, which we could resolve with the application of the CHAS card, which we could share about the benefits of the pioneer generation uh, due to access issues like where's the dentist, which is the cheapest dentist I can go to, to physical issues like the fear of going alone because he was filled with poor, poor mobility, but most importantly, also to understand that he was actually really just too kind to trouble anyone he knew could help him. I put this picture in every sharing I do to share the lessons I've learned the hard way, the importance of balancing between encouraging dependency by helping, by providing services, but also versus empowering residents to be independent by saying, let's try this together. So in this picture, the resident is trying to attend one of our community events which we've organized and he is being escorted, accompanied by a CRT volunteer. He was encouraged to walk a little bit, no matter how much, and here he uses his wheelchair as a walking aid. When he's no longer able to continue working, the volunteer would then help to complete the rest of his journey on the wheelchair. This balance is, this balance is not one which is easy to maintain because we must be wary, we must be careful of demonizing dependence but we must also in encourage independence. And I think the new work which Gerard has shown today is interdependence. To date, we have run four different community programs, four, four different community engagement programs. And our, our programs always start small with pilots. And the design of the program always involves what the residents have told us that they need, what they want. We put the plug on the Kopi Sessions program because we heard from the residents that it wasn't working well for them after 10 sessions. We, run another pro we are piloting another program currently called Life at 52, which is a response to what we have heard from residents about how the potluck parties were increasingly too overwhelming to attend because there were so many people who attended, which is the state of most community events in Singapore. It was a response to how we noticed that other segments of the community, like the adults and the younger families and the children, were not actively joining us in some of these programs because they thought that this was just organized for the seniors and not for the entire community. So instead, we piloted Life at 52, where we used the arts and a floor-based engagement approach, which, where we run each run of the events targeting specific floors in the block to provide a platform for residents to come together from the same floor to know their neighbours better, to create safer spaces for people who may be more introverted or shy, and to encourage deeper level conversations with a smaller group. 
because we are clear that what we do need what we need to do is to work with the community and not just for the community. The design of the potluck party from the onset emphasized on the activation of residents as volunteers to cook for the potluck party. As we bring some food along, the residents bring cook and bring their food along to share together with the community. We have progressed from having one resident cook when we first started the first run of the potluck party to having more than 10 resident cooks currently. It was also clear from the onset when we formed Kaseri Settlement Team that we were not here as social sector or healthcare professionals and neither is it sustainable for us to want to provide services in the long term. In fact, we are only undercutting paid work and devaluing the work of professionals if we decide to do so. It is important to understand that we never intended to want to replace the professionals and the services they provide to the residents. As part of the disruption caused by the relocation, we knew that there were a lot of issues which revolved around access accessing appropriate existing services which could help meet residents' needs. Hence, our intent from the start was to provide them in the interim while working closely with various community partners from the grassroots to the VWOs to healthcare institutions to eventually provide the relevant service, services, for our services and care for our residents in the long term. As such, the second main area of our work really is the admin intensive work of coordination and liaison having joint meetings and putting together all the different people who are trying to care and serve for the residents to have the conversations between the many helping hands who seek to serve the residents. And while the many helping hands model may be debatable, it is what we have currently, and the focus for us is then to leverage on the assets both within the community and the ecosystem to best serve the residents. The third main area of our work is what I term uh, change work, and this includes our advocacy efforts from running trails, workshops, conducting talks, working closely with stakeholders from community partners to government agencies uh, to share what we have learned on the ground to explore potential improvements and solutions which will allow us to do things better. And these efforts have been tackling various issues, whether is it about access issues, about how we can improve the relocation process in future for relocated communities and other issues. I would like to share about a few special projects that um, the team has been doing this year, apart from what I have shared previously. Uh, as part of the advocacy effort, we are writing a book which layers with a triadic structure between the residents and their interviews that we have conducted with them, uh, reflection by volunteers as well as academics. And we hope that this triadic structure will aim, will help to encourage dialogue between these different perspectives and voices and also examine the intersection between the complex challenge of relocation with other social issues like aging, housing, health, and social welfare. Presented by ArtSwap Collaborative, which is an arts-based community development organization in collaboration with CRT, is also a cultural mapping project at Cassia, which seeks to use the participatory and creative approaches to identify the cultural profile of the community and various forms of capital to understand what are the gifts in the community and what are the current structures which we do not want to break apart, but we want to use and leverage on and to help to trace what we call the interactivity between place, people and use in hopes of encouraging stronger communities. Lastly, we have also partnered Lively, which is a private sector firm, to implement a pilot project in a community which involves the installation of a combination of sensors in homes of seniors who live alone so that caregivers can better care and respond to the force or situations which require external care and support. But it's not just the hardware and technology of this project that's important to us, but really the software or the hardware of the project where we hope to build a model of community care 
where responses to alerts generated by the sensors are not responded only or mainly by CRT volunteers, but instead a collective effort, including family members of the residents who might not live together with them, or community partners on the ground, but most importantly, residents within the community themselves. One of the other projects that we have in, in, in the pipeline is also the planning phase of providing end-of-life support for our residents because we realised that there was a big lack of awareness and uh, we hope to improve the understanding and access to such planning instruments so that residents will have the assurance of eventually being able to live in peace. In conclusion, I think that many of us are here today and the work that we do requires us to ask ourselves many tough questions which often invite difficult answers in return, or maybe no answers at all. I, for one, find that I always end up with more questions than answers. However, not having the perfect answer is also not an excuse for inaction. In fact, we may never have the best answer that we seek. But we must also summon the courage within us to ask ourselves the difficult questions, like whether our efforts to help one system is feeding into the brokenness of another. And this is why it is so important for CRT to engage in the entire spectrum of work from the groundwork with the residents, as well as the change work involving advocacy, solution making, and we have found that both areas of work help to reinforce one another and allow us to do better and serve better. I would like to end by sharing that six years ago when I started my journey as a volunteer, uh, I always wondered why there seems to be so little working together. Aren't we capable of more if we work together? Whether is it having more conversations to learn from one another, or to think if our efforts can be collaborative, if not complementary. I strongly believe that there is a lot more which we can achieve if we are willing to put aside our differences to work better. So at every speaker and every event I attended, if I had a chance to, I always ask, why aren't we working together more? The answer often saddens me, but they are nonetheless real answers. We act defensively, we are too prideful, or we are not willing to take risks, embrace change, or try. So, so I think that I'd like to end off by saying that yes, we may serve different funders, we may serve different causes and communities. We will always perhaps have different interests as individuals and organizations. But it seems to me that the core of much we do is for a better tomorrow, for stronger communities and for happier people. So it's on my belief, as is today's team, that all of us can contribute, that we should find ways to work together where relevant. And I hope to remind myself today and to share with you that we must never forget that we cannot do it alone. Thank you. Thank you, Jingzhou. I mean, um, it's impressive, isn't it? He sounds like maybe our sixth generation leader. Um, <laughs> but the thing is, when I listen to him, I feel it's authentic. It's not a scripted thing. Uh, you're just kind of doing what you do because you care. When you listen to politicians, sometimes you don't feel the same way. Um, the next speaker we have is Xiao Qing, um, and she, she's recently received a PhD from the University of Melbourne and is an affiliate lecturer for Murdoch University's Communication and Media Studies. Her PhD, uh, PhD thesis investigated the ways in which activists in Hong Kong and Taiwan tactically engage with social and mainstream media and the extent to which mutual interactions and other factors influence the mediated opportunities of social movements. Um, she was a recipient of the Taiwan Fellowship of 2016, where she researched media activism and civic engagement. And she also plans to volunteer with Jingzhou in the CRT in the near future. So let's welcome Wang Xiaoqing, please. 
Good morning, everyone. Well, it feels great to be here as part of a collective participation in exploring how we, as individuals or as part of volunteer groups, VWOs, grassroots or civil society organizations can develop into greater collaborative capacity. I'm going to introduce the concept of civic technology or civic tech in short, and share stories about community building and social change with the collaborative use of technology. Drawing mainly from my fieldwork in Taiwan and subsequent research, I'm talk about how collaborative participation works in Taiwan's civic tech movement, introduce a useful tool for collective deliberation and consider how civic tech can help in community self-help and organizing here. So what exactly is civic tech? Civic tech is regarded as the means in which the use of technology could empower citizens in, uh, to work together on more level terms with the government or with private sectors in decision making. If you Google this term, you will find many definitions mention something like the use of digital technology on the basis of open data and citizen participation to transform government services, administrative processes, or enable participation in government. So civic tech projects can be categorized into open government, for example, in terms of data access, transparency, citizen engagement and decision making, and community action, such as peer-to-peer -peer production and sharing, crowdfunding, sourcing, and community organizing. So what is important to know about civic tech is that it is a community and people-centric approach to technology. We have experienced part of the digital revolution in which technological solutions have brought efficiency and convenient access to information, but have failed to solve many of the social problems we are facing. So Civic Tech itself proposes we need to take a ground-up approach to problems, understanding the local conditions, identifying gaps, and drawing from collective knowledge and experiences to resolve issues. So here I actually employed two definitions which better represent how Civic Tech could be employed for collective self-help and organizing by the community groups here. So it is technology used to inform, engage and connect citizens with the government and one another to advance civic outcomes. And it's also the use of digital technologies and social media to improve service provision, civic engagement and data analysis. So often associated with civic tech is the concept of civic hacking, which is defined as a creative and technological approach to solving civic problems. A civic hacker collaborates with others to create open source solutions using publicly released data, code and technology to solve local, social, economic and environmental challenges. Civic tech or hacking often involves the collective participation of programmers, designers, data scientists, communicators, civic organizers, government employees, or just basically anyone who is willing to work on problems together. I'm sure many of you have heard about the Sunflower Movement in Taiwan, which happened in 2014. So then during uh, that time, 300 students have dashed into and occupied the Legislative Council to oppose the unconstitutional passing of a free trade agreement with China. The occupation soon spread to the surrounding areas by thousands of supporters and for the next 23 days. This movement was exemplary in terms of the citizen involvement facilitated by the use of information and communication technologies in that there was free flow of information, crowdsourcing of supplies, and all the coordination needed for such an orderly large-scale protest. 
On-site campers were roped in to learn and participate in public deliberation about Taiwan's democratic processes. This movement also led to the prominence of this volunteer group known as GAF Zero, who set up and managed the wireless internet and network operations of the Sunflower Occupation. The group also created a headpad, which is an integrated platform of different web-based platforms, live streaming channels, media sources and reports, collaborative editing tools like Google Docs to coordinate the logistics, as well as the use of Google Maps to document locations and facilities for the supporters. Gulf Zero was formed much earlier in 2012 by a group of hackers, programmers, software engineers. They have participated in Yahoo's Open Hack Day in 2012 and won with an interactive visualization of government spending. A founding member then registered the domain name g0v.dw for projects remixing government data. And this hack action to substitute the O with zero reflects the intention to advocate a more transparent and accessible form of government data representation with technology. However, it was the Sunflower Movement two years later and related political opportunities which gave the civic tech movement a big push. A key outcome from the movement was that public demand for more openness and information transparency and the use of technology to facilitate direct engagement of the citizens in political and social issues. Gulf Zero's work is based on building the collective self-help of citizens and groups using technological tools to make data work for public interest. Referring to the diagram on the left here, the three principles of open source, hands-on, and public spiritedness are supported by the use of free software, civic media, and social activism. Gulf Zero believes that information transparency and collaboration using technology allows citizens to understand and use information efficiently and make informed decisions in their political participation as well as resolve social issues. Members define themselves as a community in which no individual dominates the participation and all projects are independent, open to assess participation and use by other groups. Gulf Zero activists have made concerted efforts to mainstream civic hacking and the above values through the regular organization of hackathons and forums. Next, I'm going to talk about some examples of their activities and projects which illustrate the activists' consistent efforts to set and refine the norms of participation, incentivize the participation, collaborate with state agencies and other stakeholders, and educate the public on civic tech. Gulf Zero's hackathons provide both physical and virtual spaces for the public to engage in collaborative production. Hackathons are held every two months and attended by about 120 participants who could initiate, collaborate, contribute, or just to learn about the various social and political projects. Each session lasts a full day. At the start, project owners will introduce their projects to solicit specific help they need and then participants can then join the projects of their interest for discussion or to perform actual work, such as writing computer code, designing websites, or copywriting. And the project representatives will provide a progress update at the end of the session. So talks on other civic tech projects or the sharing of experiences by other civic hackers will also be given during breaks for mutual learning. Through these hackathons, the collective labor of participants is leveraged upon in solving problems and improvising processes. On the bottom left uh, of the slide, you can see these are actually stickers, which um, participants can actually use to indicate their areas of expertise, uh, such as in different programming languages, design, uh, and also whether they have done work in NGOs or in government. And there's also a sticker somewhere in the middle here, like for a nobody like me. So, 
I had the opportunity to attend two Gulf Zero hackathons. It was never a down moment, though I wasn't IT trained and I have no uh, coding skills at all. And newcomers like me were put through orientation rounds to understand the objectives and needs of every project, and it was a free environment. No one cared if you participated or were just lurking around like I did most of the time. It was a session of providing free labor, and the rapport from working together and the good food were the incentives. So besides the physical gathering, hackathon participants can also follow up with their work on different web-based platforms and projects actually begin before and after the hackathons themselves. I will talk about some examples of the projects hosted at the hackathon. So uh, on the top left is a picture of Ronnie Wang who actually created this website uh, uh, extension called Jobs Helper to help job seekers identify employers who have a history of uh, labor law violations. He then went on to create this uh, news helper, so which was actually uh, an early civil society effort against fake news as it was actually launched in 2013 itself. So um, users can uh, actually get an automatic warning if they run into a fake news or if the particular news uh, that's been posted has errors in it. So when I was at Hackathon in uh, end of 2016, there was also a line chat extension being developed for smartphone users to counter the spread of rumors and untrue information. So um, if you look here at the bottom, this is actually the Ministry of Education uh, dictionary and the authoritative definition of the traditional Chinese language since it was first published in 1945. And the digital edition was actually launched in 96, and there were no upgrades for the next 17 years until an open source advocate suggested at a hackathon to transform it. And then overnight, more than 30 participants at the hackathons actually uh, published the data in open formats and also prototype websites and apps for all major platforms. And after months of deliberation, the ministry eventually agreed to Gulf Zero's fair use claim and collaborated with them to convert their Taiwanese Hoklo and Hakka dictionaries as well. And the website enjoys millions of visits each month. So uh, at the bottom here is the council voting guide. So this was actually set up by a former engineer who received logistical support and also funding from Gulf Zero. Uh, at the hackathons. So the site actually collects information on every candidate's uh, campaign promises, financial disclosures, donation records, and also the existing council members' voting records and sponsored bills. And this site has over 400,000 visitors before the legislative election in 2016. There were also instances of uh, collaboration between the government and civil society in projects created at the Gulf Zero hackathons. So a well-known example is V Taiwan, which is an online deliberation platform used to engage the public and multi-stakeholders in digital issues and policies. It was started as an idea pitch in a hackathon by a former minister with a portfolio in 2015, and the site was co-created by the government and Gulf Zero community, and it started operating in 2015. Since then, 26 issues have been deliberated using V Taiwan, with 80% leading to some tangible government action on the policies. So how it works is that it's a four-step process. Firstly, a deliberation tool 
known as Polis, is actually used to reach out to the public via Facebook advertisements and shareholder networks. Secondly, based on the responses collected from Polis, government officials and other experts respond to issues in public meetings and physical meetings are held among stakeholders, civil society groups and government, which is broadcast online. Finally, the points reached via consensus from the meetings are forwarded to the government who will incorporate this in their policies or provide explanation on the points which are not taken up. What is notable about the V-Taiwan process is the use of polis, which is capable of crowdsourcing multi-stakeholder opinion and organize them virtually into opinion groups. Using polis, participants consider and then vote to agree, disagree or pass the opinions given by others on the issue. Participants can also put in their views which they think are not represented for others to vote on. This type of deliberation ensures minority viewpoints are not being buried or go unnoticed like in a social media comment setting and does not polarise groups with different viewpoints. Instead, it uses visualisation like this to show why participants with similar viewpoints are grouped together within uh, a particular group and highlight whether there's common ground among groups. So the example on the, you see on the screen here is the discussion on whether Uber regulation uh, on We Taiwan, you can find two main opinion groups. On the left here, you can see it's a, a one that is more anti-Uber and then on the right is actually a pro-Uber group. So other than actually showing these divisions, there were also common areas uh, of agreement identified such as concerns for safety and liability insurance. So beyond the deliberation of laws and regulations, Police can use as a survey tool which tracks quantitative responses and also is intuitive enough to track qualitative trends and allow researchers to follow out unexpected and important trends observed. I would encourage groups who are working together to try this out as a platform of collaborative discussion to identify common areas of need and approaches to solutions. So there's no doubt that the work done by GovZero has been facilitated by the political opportunities, like-minded elites and collective efficacy of a civil society energised by the Sunflower Movement. They were also driven by accumulated frustration with later social and political change made, despite having a vibrant democracy and civil society that citizens have decided to use self-help and collective participation to resolve issues themselves. They found that the use of technology could offer an effective means to collaborate, and through this collective capacity, solutions to issues and social change can result. From the case study, we also see that a social movement which places importance on developing collective capacity can facilitate meaningful exchanges for community building and organizing. Civic tech projects also provide important indicators of societal needs and contribute towards sustainable forms of civic engagement. Across different societies around the world, there are also other similar, similar civic tech groups. For instance, in Australia, Random Hacks of Kindness is a collective of civic hackers based in various cities and they have helped over 50 charities and social enterprises on tech solutions ranging from disability services, disease detection and management, increasing awareness of elderly suicide and background tracking of vulnerable children. And right home in Singapore, there are also similar communities of people who want to volunteer their time and technological skills in social projects. 
On the right of the screen here is DataKai, so which is a collective of data scientists, programmers, analysts who get together regularly to help social groups work on troubleshooting, analysis, modeling, or visualization of their data sets, or with the revamping of their websites. WIS for Social Good is a global initiative which engages volunteers to analyze and develop visualization projects from data to highlight key issues. The disability sector may be more familiar with this volunteer group called Engineering Good, which has done work on assistive technology for the physically disabled. I spoke to some of the volunteers at a recent DataKai meeting, and there is certainly interest in doing more for the social service side. In fact, someone suggested to me that there are probably more volunteers than projects available. While we do not have the scale of the civic tech movement as seen in Taiwan, there is still a sizable presence of skilled professionals who could provide solutions to address some of the problems we are facing. I would be interested to hear from you later on ways in which we could incorporate more civic tech collaborations. And if I could link you up with some of the groups I know, I'll be happy to do that. Thank you. Thank you all speakers. Um, for the inspirational um, talk, as well as the kind of um, potential that even technology can bring to uh, civic life. Um, I, won't, I won't comment on all these things. I'd rather hear and give you the opportunity to uh, have a dialogue with the speakers. Would any of you like to uh, start the ball rolling? or if the speakers have questions for one another. Yes, please. Um, hello, my name is Han. I work with the local VWO. I just have a question for the panel here. Um, earlier, uh, they mentioned uh, this uh, different view. Uh, one is um, looking at building communities and look, focusing on the gifts versus um, providing services and focusing on the needs. So these two are very contrasting points of uh, ways of looking at doing good in general. So I'm just wondering whether um, you think these two uh, viewpoints can coexist, or are they mutually exclusive, so that one must take precedence over the other, or whether there's a, it, it lies on a spectrum. Because, and the other question I have is um, for Gerard. Um, I have a question, I'm wondering um, what, because you mentioned that community building is a great thing, right, to look at how community, communities can help each other, can help themselves, and uh, looking at interdependence. But the question is, what sort of obstacles have you, have you encountered in your journey? I'm quite interested to find out more about that. Uh, thank you so much for your time. So the first question is about, is, uh, is it a contrast, is it a uh, polarity between a strengths-based approach and a needs-based approach? And the second question is, um, sorry, what's the second question? Gerard. <laughs> okay. Challenges and struggles. Uh, first question is, um, yeah, it does seem like polarity, isn't it? I mean, if, uh, if uh, needs are the raw materials for services and gifts are the raw materials for community. Um, having said that, I, I don't think I'm here to, to say that then we shouldn't have any services or, or that services are bad and we should only focus on community. 
I'm not here to say that. I'm, I'm here to point out that there is a difference and uh, there are things that community can do that services cannot do and vice versa. Um, what's important is uh, not to focus on the polarity. Yes, I was making a point, so I, I show those things. But um, I think we can coexist and, uh, and let common sense rule uh, at a certain point. <laughs> You need the services, and at a certain point, you you need the community, and uh, the best of both worlds would be what I would advocate for. Very often, in this country, when uh, community takes charge, sometimes services feel very threatened, <laughs> and then they come back and uh, they try to make very defensive statements, not exactly very helpful, lah. <laughs> So, uh, but because we, we know then that's the nature, that's the way things are, we sometimes just let it go. The second question was uh, challenges. Well, I, I've just described one of the challenges. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, the other challenges, um, expectations, I think, when we, when we talk about community, uh, it's an end in itself. We are not here to uh, to say that community can solve every problem. Community is just a way of being that uh, that life becomes a lot more satisfying. Uh, let, let me elaborate. I think um, in a community, um, what I like about what he's doing is people are going to die, and. Uh, at some point, all of us die, at least for now. <laughs> all of us die, and, uh, and the community has a way of, uh, of receiving death, if not even welcoming it. And uh, I think that, that is what the community is for. I mean, you, you don't have to have a service to, to facilitate death, but you can have a community to, to accept it. I mean, people then decide then, this is the way we want to live. We all know we're going to die at some point in time. This is how we we make the best use of our time until until we're called, <laughs> right? I mean, the thing about community is uh, it's not about problem solving. Uh, it's an end in itself. Life is not a problem to be solved. Life is not services to be obtained. <laughs> I think just to add on, um, it, it's, it's not uh, mutually exclusive, um, services and needs uh, versus growing communities focusing on the assets. But I think what makes the difference is being conscious about the balance that we need to strike between both uh, and to always ask the important questions, the difficult questions on are we uh, doing too much services and are we focusing too much on the needs versus what are some of the community gifts and assets which could be activated or engaged or facilitated, or organized like what Jared shared to solve its own problems, for example. So there is no one answer that fits all the, all the problems uh, and we need to look at different ways of doing things and at different contexts, different junctures, different things are appropriate. 
Yeah, um, what I would like to add on is that on the technology itself, like I have talked um, about the possibilities of using civic technology. Of course, technology cannot be the solution for all the issues and problems. But what I've done is actually to highlight a particular community that has emerged in Taiwan, and which is citizen-led and is ground-out initiated, where you have the citizens themselves coming forward on some of the needs that they think are actually unmet. And then also through the process of working together and through what technology can help to alleviate, you know, they are actually collaborating to um, solve some of the issues they identified, or they have also offered themselves as the means for organizations or volunteer groups who will need their expertise in uh, resolving. I was curious uh, what you thought about. So these guys have done the work they do with low tech or minimal tech, right? What, what do you think is the role of technology if you can already do quite meaningful work without it, and what is potential? Um, well, I guess, you know, whether you do things that are like, I mean, I see they do a lot of community, face-to-face -face work and all that, but I think at the same time, they are also collecting information, and we can never run away from collecting data, and I'm sure there's a lot, a lot of very rich data that is in their, uh, you know, in, in, in their, in their, uh, within their means that they might perhaps be able to use it uh, to identify certain trends. Like, let's say if they want to do issue advocacy, that's where we will need evidence, right? That's where we might need to look through the raw data, and from there, uh, there could be data analysts, or they could also be maybe even social worker, because uh, civic tech is really about getting people from different expertise together where they can look at the data to get together and from there they can identify what they think is important so in this case it's also about leveraging the knowledge and the experiences of a community there to decide what is important and then from there you know you can actually build on and you can advocate this or you can um, you know come up with programs thank you for that um, other questions yes please Um, maybe the lady behind first, uh, and, and oh, then sorry. the lady in front. No, behind, you can go first, okay. please. Hi, I'm Aparna, I run a patient engagement platform. I just wanted to understand, I don't know from who, maybe Gerard, maybe uh, uh, somebody else is, do you have, or have you had situations where uh, the bigger challenge is for people to believe that they have the strength, or they have the gift, or that they can contribute? rather than uh, just rely on uh, an expert to solve a problem. So the question is, um, what do you think, is, is it a great challenge for people to believe they can contribute instead of relying on experts to solve the problem for them? <laughs> uh, it doesn't happen overnight, I think we we have to create an environment and um, and the people who are holding the environment must be able to look for what people can give. Very often when we are holding the environment, we tend to look for what's missing and try and bring in something. Um, there's a shift in perspective because what we have is enough and uh, how do you start to appreciate what is it that we have? Um, yeah, it's, uh, you, you start making that shift, you find that we actually have quite a bit, and we, <laughs> we have quite a lot, yeah. I think it's always a challenge, and uh, especially when the environment or the people, different people who are providing different services in the area especially do not um, 
consider some of these elements as well, then you're kind of working against the tide when you're trying to activate and engage more of the gifts. But I think it's, it's a process that you can only take, take place over time. Uh, whether is it convincing stakeholders that this is worth investing time and effort to do it together, to believe in it together, or even with residents, and this is where uh, the relationships come in strong because sometimes the first time when they want to do something, they do it because uh, they believe that they believe in what you say, they believe that uh, you have their good interests and intentions in mind, and only after the first time they have tried, then they see that oh, actually I can do this. So, so the example was like the Polak party which we run, when we first started, there was only one person who was willing to step up to do it. But gradually, as they, say, as they saw one person do it, then they think, can I do it as well? And more of them will step forward. Thank you. Um, yeah, I'm Cicely. I'm representing Hope for the Journey. We are a group of mom who have children who are autistic. They are all 18 and above, and most of them couldn't find employment. Uh, we are working among ourselves with whatever thing that we have, all the gifts putting together whether we, come, we are homemakers or we are employed or we are entrepreneurs. Uh, we're thinking about something like crowdfunding, but we have not much information since we are very uh, new in this area. Let's say all the parents, since the kids are already 18 and above, most of the parents are going to be 50 or 15 and above. We worry for many, many things after we are gone and die. But one of the things so now we are looking at is employment. We're thinking about crowdfunding. Can you, Dr. Wong, give us more idea how we can put our resources together, each one a bit, and contribute? Because to build a, a job for our children, let's say a sheltered workshop, which I find that is, uh, most of our children are disabled, but they have lots of ability. And one of the most disabled of these autistic children is that they cannot take public transport. We are thinking of putting a workshop among ourselves, whether it's agriculture or manufacturing, that we create. So can you elaborate on how do we do crowdfunding? Well, uh, I think this is um, a big question, which we're not, uh, I want to be able to address quickly. I think most importantly is, you know, the spirit of civic tech itself is really to understand what exactly are the issues. So there will be some sort of uh, problem understanding and so-called the needs analysis. And then also from there, identifying, you know, what are um, the, the issues that are being faced and the possible solutions. That means drawing from different members of the group, which I assume in a civic tech community. So what they can do is to, from these different people to understand, maybe there are already existing areas of uh, resources which you know, your group can actually tap on. And if not, you know, what are the ways that we, we can do it? So it, it might even be, a, a, I mean, it could be a tech solution in terms of uh, maybe even a mapping of the different services or job opportunities that might be available. I mean, I, I'm just throwing out because I'm not aware. And I mean, to be honest, I'm not aware of um, uh, knowledgeable enough about you know services for the for the um, your, your your kids right your children so but I would think there are possibilities because a big part of it is really discussion and drawing from the collective knowledge and strengths of people or even their existing networks so I guess you know it is good that you know there is an informal group like yours coming out to tr to actually you know bring out the 
what what do you all need and what are the existing gaps and from there you know uh, we can actually get people who are interested enough or who think they have the means to actually help and collaborate together and I think that's the point of this forum as well you know that we can draw people together to see you know how we can contribute and even if you know there's no immediate solution I think we have to be realistic that you know we are not here to get instant solutions but really to explore ways and possibilities of what we can do today now or maybe you know in the midterm or long term and maybe in the spirit of what Gerard is talking about in terms of gifts, there might be someone in this room who has done crowdfunding. Later in the community dialogue, you can do an offer and request and you can say, can somebody help us do crowdfunding? We don't know how to do it. We would like your support. And we'll see, um, and we'll consolidate all these views and, and see where we get from there. Yes, please, the gentleman in the middle. Thank you to all the speakers. Um, for Dr. Wong, I enjoyed your uh, discussion of Taiwan. It's very interesting. But um, to what extent do you see that some of the lessons that you've learned in the Taiwan context are applicable to Singapore? Because you talked about the sunflower movement. What do you think are the barriers to more open data in Singapore? And how do you think we can best overcome these challenges? I think to uh, the gentlemen, both, the, simplistically, there's sort of like a two approach change. One is, you know, we want stronger families, you know, stronger communities, and on the other hand, we want um, advocacy, right? We want the state to sort of change certain things, but like what the previous question was asking about Yulian's book. So how do you both, I guess, Gerard and Tsingzhou, deal with this balance between do we ask for change, like advocate the state, or do we want, you know, to advocate stronger sort of ground up approach and how do you make that decision? So I'll let Xiaoqing answer the first question. To what extent is civic tech possible in uh, Singapore? Um, I think most uh, lessons from Taiwan, so briefly, uh, I think what I have learned from the Taiwan is actually, you know, how this group has actually come together and invested their time and effort to, you know, provide a safe and non-judgmental space for people to actually come together, to work together, or even if they are not contributing yet to find out what are the ways, you know, uh, that they can actually provide solutions or even to just do their little bit to solve um, you know the, the diverse social and political issues that they are facing and which and also a big part of what they do is um, the education part the public awareness part because you know civic tech it is not exactly new but you know it is still new enough in a way that a lot of people do not know how it works how can we work together and the idea about technology you know coding designing software data analysis might seem really daunting to most people that we might just want to stay away from technology at all so i think when I was there, you know, I was someone who was really not IT trained and I was also a bit worried about being, you know, going into a hackathon, especially when I think hackers do have that kind of uh, uh, connotation, right, about people who are just hacking into people's data and security, but that's, that's certainly not the case uh, in Taiwan. But, and that's, that's why I say it's important to actually to be exposed to the idea of this, to think, um, to, to get together, which I thought what Taiwan has done well was that it actually have managed to get a lot of people together in one room to discuss 
about issues, what are the best solutions to revamp this website, and from this big data set, you know, what can we do about it, how can we clean out the data, what kind of modeling we can do. And for this kind of discussions, any, you know, almost anyone you know, with some work or professional experience can, can do. So I think this is a very valuable learning lesson for all of us. And then I think for uh, barriers to open data, I think in fact in Singapore, we do actually have a lot of government data sets that are actually open. But I think we ourselves as citizens, we have not actually gone in to look at this and actually to think about how we can make the data work for us. And I mean, in fact, during one of uh, a public talk which I went to, to, um, to approach this guy who has actually done a lot of visualization based on the open government data he can find on the websites. When I went to him and told him what I was doing, you know, he actually gave me a really, don't come near me look, you know, because he was like, oh, you know, I don't know what civic tech, I, I just do it out of my leisure, you know, uh, because I want to explore this. So you see, you know, we, I think this kind of mindset is very dominant in Singapore's context about, you know, we lack the imagination of what we can do. We lack the imagination of collaboration itself, and which I think, you know, uh, one of the big barriers is actually within ourselves, and we really need to open ourselves up to understand, you know, from examples, uh, some of the examples that I highlighted, or even examples that we can find overseas, or even within ourselves, the groups, you know, what they have done, which I thought have actually opened up a lot of possibilities of what we can do with data and technology. Thank you. And the second question for Gerard and Tsingzhou is the, there are two approaches to change, right? Strong families, communities do it ourselves or advocacy, ask government to do. How do you balance these two uh, things? I, I think you got to first uh, look at the issue at hand. Uh, is that something you really want the government to do for you? Because uh, you, you, surrender, you surrender certain things and you you actually lose the value of something. So I, I give you a very simple example, right? You want kids to grow up in families, and uh, you then decide that a family can't look after the child. And so what happens to the child? The child then has to be looked after by, by some sort of institution outside the family. Um, it sounds so logical, right? Child needs help, but is that, if you if you look at that, is that is that as simple as that? I mean, what happens to children when they are actually taken away from their family? It's not so straightforward. But you know, before you ask, uh, before you abdicate our own responsibilities to do something, think of what some of the side effects could actually be, and careful what we are asking for, lah. Basically, I think if you ask me how to balance, then then always check. Uh, what are we actually asking for? And be careful what we're asking for. And I think for me, it really also goes back to how we can't do it alone. So not everything can be solved by the government uh, through policies. Not everything can be solved by social services or strong communities. Uh, I think it's about recognizing the importance that the both, the both approaches, uh, the, the work and the services or care on the ground versus the advocacy work with the state uh, policy um, recommendations, they need to ha work hand in hand with one another. If you don't have the ground experience, you don't know what is actually happening behind the processes, behind what is being said, it's very hard to advocate for what might be better. Uh, but on the other hand, if you only focus on what's just happening on the ground, then uh, we are only leaving the structural systemic problems and impediments to continue uh, for the next generation, which is also not healthy. Yes, please. 
Hi, I'm Joyce from Community Foundation of Singapore. Um, actually, my question is a little bit different. I wanted to tap on your knowledge in doing community building in the community to say that is there a way we can build community between the organizations that we work together with? So in your experience, you probably have worked with different stakeholders interested in a specific geographical community. But let's say in the room here, all of us represents an organization. How then do we build the community within the organizations so that we could collectively do something to make the impact better? Because I feel that we are very often driven by either our organizational agendas and all that. So how can we then also look at building community between the service providers to say that, you know, leveraging on our unique strengths that our organization can bring through and then build that community in order to also work with the beneficiaries, I have to use this word for this time being, so that we can get better outcomes. Yeah. Um. <laughs> Actually, actually, what you're asking is, uh, how do we improve networking among organizations? And uh, is that right, Joyce? I mean, more. How do you improve cooperation within yeah, organizations? I, 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 don't, I don't think I'm looking for networking, but that how can we each take our own organizational strength, come together, and say, let's do this and do it better. I think you've got to be very patient. It starts with whether the different organizations in the room actually like each other or not. <laughs> and can stand being in the same room with each other. I think it starts with that. Like I said, um, you, you don't orchestrate things like that. You, you, you look at the, the examples that I give. The women actually like each other and they care for each other. Then the problems become no big deal. No? They, they, they just take it in their stride. Organizations, we operate on a different logic. We operate on uh, maybe a more instrumental logic. We have a survival logic. All of us are competing for, for funds, uh, limited funds. And so we end up being competitors rather than people who actually love each other and like each other. <laughs> well, I think the first thing we, we have to realize how the dynamics of what actually is happening there and I'm not saying it's impossible. I think I, I think uh, we we have to be a bit more cautious. We start small, maybe two or three organisations coming together to be friendly with each other, trying to understand um, how they can work together, how they can support each other, and uh, not to see it as one big network, but maybe many pockets of such organisations. Eventually, they come together. Yeah. Actually, there's an interesting implication. I guess. If, if I, I might add, is it the implication is that you've done community work and you, there's a particular way of doing it. Mm. Can it apply the same logic to organizations or do organizations always operate with an instrumental logic? Can yeah. organizations be like a community in other words? I think, I think you can, but you have to be very clear what's the distinction. Whoever is working, the organization has to be very clear. Um, I, I speak about my our own organization. I think we call it a community workplace. Does it mean we have no KPI? No, actually we do have KPIs. Does it mean we don't have a three-year plan because uh, we believe in the mystery of the future? <laughs> uh, 
No, actually, there is context, right? When I take that type of funding, or when we take that type of funding, we, we operate in that way, and we report, and we, we tell our narrative in that manner. But that doesn't change uh, who we are as a being. We still uh, want to try and care for each other within the neighbor, within the organization. There's a different spirit as opposed to how we operate. And there can be parallel narratives. Uh. But to be very clear, the distinction, I mean, I don't talk about this community stuff to some people who are funding us because it won't make sense to them at all. In fact, I come across as quite scary to them, oh, very cult-like, oh, these people, how can we actually fund them? <laughs> so, so it's context is everything. You have to try, you have to understand how to move from one context to another. And I, if you ask me, yes, of course, organizations can learn a lot from community. And communities can learn a lot from organizations as well. For me, it's also about where's the relevance and purpose because we need the alignment to come together. If not, then what's the, what's the point of coming together as well? Uh, it's also, also about holding space, creating safe spaces where we can put down um, what might be our dislikes or what might have been our judgments on each other to think about actually some of the problems that we think of, of each other actually have deeper context that we have yet to understand. Uh, can we have more honest conversations about what are the limitations that surround us? Can we better understand one another before we can think about forming um, more communities or connecting together more tightly? Maybe one last question. Oh, your hand very fast. Could you speak a bit louder? Uh, thanks. Okay, uh, I'm Catherine. I'm from Collapse MVPC. So I have a question for Gerard and Mr. Jin. Jin Chong. Sorry. Yeah. So um, okay. So you both have achieved great work with the community that you are working with. But if you were to redo everything again, what would you change in your methodology? That's number one. Then number two, what are some of the services your community, the community you are working in is lacking and what are some of the things your community can bring to another one? So the first question is, if you had to redo everything all over again, if you were a young, hunky man in the swimming pool, <laughs> uh, what would you change? Would you give way to the elderly? And second of all, maybe that question first. I think it's a bit hard to answer what I would change, what we would change, because a lot of what we have done is, some, is, is things that we journey along the way and we find uh, some of the answers along the way. Uh, without context is, context is very important. So if the context is different, then it will, it will have changed. Um, if things happen differently in a different time, then things will have changed as well. Uh, but I think it's just along the way of the journey and the processes being more important and the outcome eventually. There is no one specific thing that I, I would think that we want to really change uh, because those are things that we have evolved along the way from when we first started to now we have evolved many times. And I think it's that evolution process where we are always revisiting this question, what needs to be changed moving forward, what needs to be kept as we move forward. So yeah, that's my answer. Yes. Uh, well, um, you know, there are some things you know when you're older, 
and some things you don't know when you're young, you just cannot know. <laughs> so, um, what I know today has been a result of many mistakes I've made along the way, and uh, many things I've seen, so I wouldn't have been able to see what I see today, let's say, 30 years ago. Um, but if I could really change something, I, I, think, I think one thing we, we shouldn't, if, if I had the power to do it, I wouldn't professionalize social services. I think um, the domain of the social work is in the community, and uh, when you professionalize something like that, you actually weaken the community by the stronger there are, stronger there are service providers, the weaker there is community. And if I really wanted to change something, I really wouldn't professionalize social services because you medicalize away a social problem when actually you need people to take responsibility for a problem. I shudder from the word, actually what you need to do is you need to politicize the problem. Not saying that you, you need this party, you do that, or that party, you do something like that. But you need people to take charge of their own lives. And uh, if you have professional social workers, they should understand this role that you are here to help people help themselves. You are not here just to provide a service. You're not here to say that, oh, this is one problem, your medical problem A, problem B, problem C, and for every problem, the solution A, B, and C. Actually, what we have to do is to move away from being experts, but to be facilitators who come in, listen to people, and try and understand how can people best help themselves with the available resources among themselves, within the rich country that we are, whatever it is, but you do not have to standardize solutions. Because once you standardize a solution, you create a product, and then it's a question of whether we can afford or we cannot afford that product. Most of the time, we can't afford that product because social services, you, the people using it cannot pay. So it's not sustainable. Thank you. Um, I'll leave each of the speakers an opportunity to close. Uh, so we want you, if now that you've come and shared with the community, what is the take-home lesson you want them to bring back with them? What is, if, if they wanted and were inspired by your words, you know, what can they do? What can they do now, here and now, with the others around them? And maybe we'll start with Xiao Ching, then Ting Zhou, and end off with the wise sage. Um, something that was stuck in my head when Jing Zhou's presentation was that, you know, the more community work he does, the more questions he has said. So, I mean, also when I'm researching on civic technology itself, you know, a big question is also, you know, how can we actually use more civic tech in Singapore itself? Like, especially when our country is moving towards greater digitalization, you know, a lot of smart technology, wiring of our households and all that. A big question in my head is also about the communities or people who might be left behind. So, you know, I would like all of you to actually even consider how could we actually have a more humanistic approach to using technology itself? Can we actually use technology using our knowledge, your knowledge of the community of the ground here, you know? What can we do? What kind of projects can we do that we can, you know, get people to collaborate together, you know, and try to resolve some of the issues that we are facing? They may not be big ones, but even small problems, I think, if they are resolved, can go a long way. Thank you. 
Um, to me, it's, uh, as people are like us in the social sector, we, we have to remember that we don't always have all the solutions. So some of the solutions are with the community, some of the solutions are with the systems of the government. But even with that said, I think um, really for me it's also about how we should um, not always, it's not that we cannot do so, but we should not always say uh, it's like this because government says this, it's like this because this is that. Uh, we have to also look at ourselves and ask what can we do if we really want to change uh, moving forward and there is no one solution uh, or one party that will provide all the solutions, but it's really all of us. Uh, it's, it's really clarity of identity, I think. Um, uh, somebody wanted me to fill in an application form and ask me what is my occupation. And uh, he expected me to write something like executive director or something like that. And I wrote community worker. I, I didn't think, because that's what I do. I mean, this is my identity. I think uh, Justin was asking me what my career is. I said, this has been my career. I've been a community worker. I, I work with the community. I try to, try to get try to preserve the notion that we have something called community. And so I say, yeah, I'm a community worker. That's my identity. With uh, my identity, then uh, what is uh, the purpose that I'm trying to collaborate with other people to bring about? So when I'm clear about my identity, then I, based on that, I can look at the purpose. Are there pe other people in the room who share my purpose? And we start to talk, and then we, we can see, okay, if we want to work towards this purpose, what are the different roles we play? So in, in my mind, I think uh, it always starts by being very clear what is our identity. We call ourselves a social worker, call ourselves anything you want to call ourselves, but, <laughs> but what is the identity for, I mean? Yeah, so whether we call it a career, a vocation, doesn't matter. I mean, we have identity, and what are we here for? Yeah. Thank you, Gerard, and thank you to all our guests, our tech enabler, young force for social change, and wise old village sage and community worker. <laughs> I am merely your research fellow hosting this. Um, can we give them a round of applause? And we'll have lunch outside, so we'll break for lunch and come back at 1.15. Just some uh, minor things. If you are an ED of a VWO or senior management, we have a survey that we are running. So if you are interested to do this survey, please go to Andrew over there at the corner. If lunch is boring, or nothing else to do, and you want to chit-chat or network, go to him and you can uh, fill in a survey for us. Thank you very much and see you after lunch.